Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 490, March 17, 2022, The Archive and the Library in the Pandemic, with Valerie Marlowe, Cornelia Posh, and Adriana Link. And I would like to introduce my guests to you. Adriana Link is head of scholarly programs at the Library and Museum of the American Philosophical Society, where she manages the society's residential fellowships and a robust slate of programs. Outside her work at APS, she spends a lot of time thinking and writing about mid-20th century anthropology and collections and serves as a managing editor for the History of Anthropology Review. Cornelia Posh is a PhD student in the Disaster Science and Management Program at the University of Delaware and a graduate research assistant at the Disaster Research Center's E.L. Corintelli Resource Collection, where she works with Valerie Marlowe. Her research interests lie in disasters and cultural heritage, especially libraries. And my third guest is Valerie Marlowe. She's Assistant Director, Archives and Collections at the Disaster Research Center and co-founder of the COVID Collections Project which seeks to connect researchers and the interested public with COVID-related collecting efforts around the world. Cornelia, Valerie, and Adriana, thanks for being here on COVID Calls. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great to be back. So I'd like to, if it's okay, have a chance to find out um, how the pandemic has been for you, which is this sort of impossible question. So I've been asking people to share maybe a memory that really kind of encapsulates this time. And Valerie, can I start with you on that question? Sure. Um, I think um, the last time I was on COVID calls was very early. And I think we had maybe just started our own collecting efforts at the Disaster Research Center. Um, And uh, the memory that kind of sticks out for me, I think, is one that uh, is related to that. So I think relevant for this call. Um, so I was sitting, uh, on my couch watching the news after a long day of working from home with my then two year old. Uh, and, um, I remember thinking, uh, about, um, how glad I was that we weren't doing a lot of collecting of our own. This isn't Really, it wouldn't normally be in our wheelhouse. We try not to duplicate the efforts of other institutions. And then um, Jared Kushner uh, was in a press conference and started talking about the strategic national stockpile, which is in our wheelhouse. Uh, and he described it in a way that was counter to, I think, what most uh, most people in emergency management and disasters uh, understood to be the intent and and sort of use of the of the, the thing and, and the, of the strategic national stockpile. And then, uh, the website changed, like while I was looking at it to the description of the strategic national stockpile changed. Like I refreshed the page and it was a different description because I had gone live to it just to make sure I was like clear. Uh, and, um, that was the moment that I knew then that 
Um, this would be uh, perishable, perishable information about how the collection was managed. I mean, about how the pandemic was managed. And we would then need to sort of think about how we would get involved because perishable data about disasters is kind of our it's kind of our thing at the Disaster Research Center. So uh, that was kind of um, uh, and uh, to use a, a clean version of the actual thought, an oh no moment for me, <laughs> but also kind of the moment when it crystallized that there was going to be more going on. So we've since collected 60,000 government documents. Uh, and so, um, and that is the our narrowly scoped effort. <laughs> so it's been a big undertaking. Valerie, that is some next level archiving <laughs> practice, I have to say. Like, I don't, any, any junior archivists who are listening, you know, younger scholars, and, and it, the idea that you have to, like, literally be waiting <laughs> to watch the administration memory hold documents. But of course, mm -hmm. that was a common practice in those years. I mean, Usually yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was it was part of a problem. sort of building pattern, right? Of like yeah. changing things and information on the web, and um, yeah, and also just a pure coincidence. Like to be clear, I'm not recommending as a best practice that you live fact yeah. check everything that goes on in the world, <laughs> but um, yeah, that that was a, a kind of a building pattern, and so I think that was. I agree. You you were a guest on a researchers roundtable April sixth two thousand twenty and mm. just to take you back the yeah. Johns Hopkins reported that day ten thousand three hundred eighty nine deaths in the United mm. States so it's yeah new, it's completely incomprehensibly different world at this point Adriana let me bring you in the same question sure uh, so I've actually been thinking about it in context of uh, how busy this time of year tends to be uh, for me. Uh, so part of my role at the APS is, is uh, managing our fellowship program. Right now we're in the midst of fellowship selection. Uh, last year, or two years ago rather, I, I was I, there was something sort of nice about the collective pause uh, that, that happened sort of uh, unexpectedly as a result of the shutdowns uh, associated with COVID. So right, I, we were talking before the call started about how I, I feel like I, I sort of exist in two forms now, that I, I have this whole kind of life on Zoom where I'm managing Zoom programming while also managing day-to-day -day operations, fellowships, things like that at APS. And, and it's been uh, especially busy uh, because of, of the kind of return to, to on-site work. And, and, and thinking about how in some ways, kind of lovely and restorative that that un unanticipated moment of pause was, particularly as we were emerging from winter into spring. So I, I don't know if it's because there's been so much um, just kind of heavy news and, and just you know heavy things in the air lately that that I'm trying more and more to to hold on to, to positive thoughts and memories. Maybe I'm a glass half full half full kind of person, but 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 really kind of reflecting on 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 that that moment of. of Pause as, as something that was kind of a benefit of, of uh, the pandemic and something that maybe we need to find ways to, to reintegrate now that we're returning to something that resembled uh, the, the before times as we've taken to calling it. We worked on a few projects. I mean, early, you, you were the first person to reach out to me um, when the lockdown started in the U.S. To, 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 you were organizing a roundtable about the history of pandemics. And that was really, for me, a, a, a sort of moment where I said, oh, wow, we're really going to talk about this. Like, we're, this is, I mean, I had been following it like everybody, but, but you were the first person to actually say, okay, we're going to organize around this. And we're going to have a conversation. And it was hugely attended, I remember. 
I mean, people yeah. were really trying to make sense at that point. No, that was our, our very first virtual program at uh, APS. I, I think I had downloaded Zoom maybe the day before. Had no idea how it worked. Uh, we were still figuring things out, and it was it was really an exciting moment for me too, as uh, as a historian of science trying to do more programming around history of science uh, at APS to be able to to call upon you and Graham Mooney, who was a pres- professor of mine at Hopkins, to to be in conversation and and um, you know. It, it was it was both very exciting and and, and as you say, it's really real. Just how relevant uh, the work that we all kind of think is hypothetical, and, and you know, there's five people who care. Uh, it became very relevant very quickly, really fast. Yeah, it made me wish I had paid a lot more attention to my uh, history of medicine uh, course coursework when I was a graduate student. I was in a history of science, medicine, and technology program. Um, as Adriana knows, and I was fastidiously focused on technology and science because I thought I would never, I would absorb history of medicine, I thought. And that has, that came to haunt me throughout this last two years when I've talked to brilliant historians of medicine and I'm like, like trying to desperately to catch up to their knowledge. And as you say, things that maybe we thought only five people cared about and now the world is trying to draw upon that base of knowledge. Cornelia, can I draw you into this conversation as well? Sure. Thank you. So um, I'm joining you actually today from Rome, Italy, where I spent the first six months of the pandemic because I lived here at the time um, before I moved to the U.S. in late summer of 2020. And um, that early period, those first six months here, I think my memories are of very mixed feelings because in one uh, on the one side on the one hand of course um Italy at that time was really the hot spot the first hot spot outside of China so it was doing really poorly it was it was terrible and at the same time I was in contact with my family back home in Austria and there was this like totally different perception. It's like I was here watching horrified as, you know, you might remember those those images with the, from the north of Italy with the military trucks carrying out the coffins. And um, and back home, my family was still like, well, well, but it's not that bad. And nobody really had, they didn't, they had not caught on yet. And so I was sitting here in the middle of this event and trying to convince my grandparents to stay home and things like that. So that was really a a tough time. Um, I remember haunting images. um, Like I remember at Easter, uh, Pope Francis alone in St. Peter's Square. That was one of the strongest images. The Pope and the military trucks, those are the two pictures that really um, embody for me the beginning. But then there were also really good, I have really good memories. Like, um, if you know Rome, it's always, um, it's so crowded. It's like incredibly crowded. And on my way to work, I would always walk past the Trevi fountain and you basically never could see the fountain because it's just so many, there's so many people. You can go there maybe at three in the three a.m. and maybe you find it without people. And suddenly you could actually see the fountain and take, I have, I don't know how many pictures I took because every day, again, I took a picture because I thought, oh, it's so incredible. There's no, it's just a fountain. Nobody there. Mm -hmm. And I connected to the person, a girl who lives opposite 
of me here who has a terrace opposite. And we, we hadn't talked before, but since we were both staying home, we connected. And so I think those were the, those were some positive um, memories, how you suddenly, you know, you have a different outlook on what's going on. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, the reconnecting with your city because you can see it again is a really interesting idea. I've heard people describe you know, New York that way, uh, sort of being in lower Manhattan, an, an empty lower Manhattan, which nobody really ever seen finding themselves. I, you're the first person I've talked to to describe Rome that way. It's really interesting to think about. Um, let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and this is part of the Restoring Memory series of episodes that we're doing as we're getting close to the 500th episode of COVID Calls. Valerie, let me come back to you. You kind of started us off when you talked about your um, uh, in-the-moment um, Trump administration uh, gathering, data gathering there. But I wanted to ask you more broadly how the, how the Disaster Research Center um, Archive and Library has approached archiving the pandemic. And I guess my first question to that is, did you have a protocol sort of in place? Do you all already have sort of collecting guidelines for disasters in the moment? It's, a, it's an amazing, for people who don't know, it's an amazing resource historic for people who study history of disasters and emergency management. And I've spent a lot of great hours there, but I had never really thought about how you collect in the moment. Yeah. Um, I, so we have our ongoing sort of collection development policies, right? That, that manage day-to-day govern sort of day-to-day collecting. Um, and then we do have quick response collecting sort of protocols and practices both for the larger research center and then for the collection. The DRC sort of pioneered in the U.S. some of the quick response disaster research, sort of going right after a disaster event and collecting perishable data. And we've kind of over the years um, translated that into the collection in an effort to support that work. Um, and so uh, we have you know, a couple of different sets of practices. If we're supporting field research, we do one sort of set of things and look for different sets of documents. And if we're trying to document an event or some aspect of an event more often uh, for the collection itself, we do a little differently. And in this case, um, you know, I think it, when we started doing this, nobody really knew that uh, how how big the pandemic was going to be obviously we knew it was a big deal, but how, how the scale and the scope of it and how long and, you know, all of that stuff was still a lot of unknown. Um, and so and and as I mentioned before, we try not to duplicate the efforts of other collecting institutions. Right. So um, I tried to be really intentional about how we scoped our collecting efforts. So we started with um, sort of the early U.S. hotspots. Um, so we collected documents at the state level for New York um, and Washington, and we have done that throughout the course of the the event. And then we did documents at the federal level that relate, especially those that related specifically to emergency management and disasters outside of just the pandemic, because we really felt like those would be relevant and useful. Um, and so we've collected a lot of executive orders. We've collected a lot of you know, web documentation, uh, not web archiving in the sense of like uh, of what you might think of as web archiving, but sort of capturing different versions of websites across time, different specific pages, things like that. That has still turned out to be a huge collecting <laughs> effort. I have two um, student workers who work a combined 
hundred hours per pay period, I guess. And, and most of their time until very recently has been dedicated just to COVID specific collecting and cataloging that information and making it available. So it's been a real, um, it's been a real, real wild ride as, as they might say. Cornelia, let me bring you in if you want to add anything to that. Talk about your experience and particularly being a, a graduate student uh, entering, you know, sort of this world of data management, thinking about collecting and, and working on a dissertation at this time. What, that, what has that been like? Yeah, it's, um, as Valerie said, it was a wild ride. Um, so I, I have a, a library background, but, you know, I worked in a, like a, traditional research library with, you know, no, not much room for improvisation or not much need for improvisation. And so um, jumping in into something that, that I had not had any experience before was really, really interesting. Seeing, working at the DRC without working at the DRC because the, DR, the disaster research center, basically nobody was there. I would go there every once in a while, but um it was really um a challenge to get into a um you know into a team and into a workflow that was basically all virtual um but it was fascinating i mean it's uh um yeah just um you have to learn a lot of things very quickly and um I guess that was a, once again, let's get back to, you know, they're positive things. You learn a lot of things very quickly. We were chatting a moment before we came on and you were talking about some of your research and the way that public libraries, um, you know, pivoted to deal with what Valerie was talking about, what you were talking about, you know, dealing with remote access and, and um, the problems also of being a, like a civic institution in the middle of a disaster, which is like... <laughs> really important, particularly when there's converging disasters, not just COVID, but Black Lives Matter and January 6th, with a lot of things happening. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of your findings along those lines? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still in the early stages of my dissertation research, but um, I've looked in a, like in a kind of a preliminary study. I've looked at um, some of the public libraries in Delaware to see um, how they, what kind of programming and what kind of services they were offering before the pandemic and how they changed um, in the first period of the pandemic where basically by state order, everything was locked down. Um, and then how as soon as they could go back to, to in-person services, some of them, I, I could see some of them went back all in-person as soon as they could Others continued and still continue to do things like I don't know, story time online or they have curbside pickup for craft uh, sets. And a lot of them, of course, um, a lot of them amped up their Wi-Fi um, trying to and, and, you know, organized laptops and hotspots and things for their patrons uh, to try to to meet their needs. Then um, many of you will have heard they, uh, some of them uh, worked as testing centers, as vaccination hubs. They converted their book, their book mobile into the book bus, into a vaccine bus 
um, you can get uh, tests there. Um, so they really tried to, to cover all the bases. And, and I think I will be interested in seeing how the different libraries uh, make different decisions and to mm. figure out how, why, um, how come some wanted to go back in person as soon as they could, others not, and then, yeah. I think this is going to be really important research because if you think of two sectors in American life that have continually been downsized and budgets cut, public health and libraries, and you're looking at the convergence of, the, of those two institutions in this pandemic, I think it's really um, policymakers are going to need to see the important role that libraries played throughout the pandemic. Adriana, let me bring you in um, because the APS is a very unique institution. Um, in many ways, because of its history, but it's like a lot of other historical collecting institutions. You've got people there. I mean, you have the collections, and then you have a population of people who are there, and some of them have spent a long time planning to be there. They may have projects planned very minutely to be with you for a short period of time. Can you talk a little bit about the life of the of the research and, and also the programs and how you had to modify those in the pandemic? Sure. Uh, so this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And, and actually, I, I really like uh, Cornelia's uh, comment about uh, connecting the, the, the new ways of thinking about connecting with with our audiences and our researchers and our patrons, um, which is something that, that I've been thinking about both in terms of how we, we serve our researchers and our fellows, but also our audiences. So, so this question of, of accessibility, on the one hand, uh, you know, we, we were closed um, from, from March 2020, really uh, in terms of our reading reading room until uh, just this past January 2022, we reopened to our researchers. So, so thinking about what do you do when you can't physically access the materials that you need as a PhD student or an early career scholar whose whose career really depends on on being able to to get um, you know a hold of those materials in person, and and it raised a lot of really important questions about okay, well, what can we as as an independent research library with, with limited staffing, most of whom are working from home, how do we uh, pivot so that we can make those materials accessible? And, and I think we, we sort of came to, to the realization that, that we can only do so much. We experimented with, with trying to launch a remote fellowship program um, to, to, to mixed results. I think there have been other institutions have, that have been more successful in doing that who have, because of the capacity. Um, but, but really now juggling that question of how do we... Um, how do we then prioritize those people who received funding in 2019 to come and do research in the collections when we have, you know, a whole slew of other projects that have been developed during the course of the, the, the pandemic that also need to use the resources? So it's really this, this kind of balancing act that we're, we're, we're grappling with now in, in how to serve all of those uh, different audiences. On the other hand, um, as somebody who thinks a lot about programming, the COVID was amazing for us uh, in terms of reaching new audiences. I mean, I, I host now uh, an Indigenous Studies seminar series. It was really intended uh, at the start to bring together scholars throughout Philadelphia who are right. working on Indigenous studies and related fields. 
And, and we have people coming in from Europe. We have people from all over the place. And we're really now able to kind of pinpoint and connect people through that programming in ways that we never thought possible. So it's this really interesting irony of, on the one hand, the physical access to the collections has been limited. On the other hand, access to audiences who could who could use our collections down the road has has ballooned. So it's, it's a really curious time for us. Can you say anything there about the impact of, of reaching um, audiences with mobility disabilities who might not have been able to? Because this is early in the pandemic. This seemed to be one of those things, and it's been an important discussion in the disability rights community to say, hey, okay, you know, now we can see what's possible with accommodation that you told us was impossible. I'm worried about going back. I'm worried about retrenching now that the pandemic, well, not over, but moving into a new phase. But have you been able to gauge that? I don't even know how you how you would sort of track that. Yeah, I mean, that's an ongoing conversation, too, but certainly one that that really came to a head um, because of the pivot to virtual programming. So so captioning is now just kind of a default mode uh, for, for all of our virtual events. Uh, we're talking now uh in more concrete terms about renovating our, our facilities so that they are uh, more accessible for, for folks with mobility issues. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's just brought the conversation to a head in, in a way that, you know, it was, it was always something that we thought about, but really now it is a priority in a way that maybe hadn't been previously. And just one more question to stick with this, just about the archive and the archival holding. So here's something I've heard out there. Um, uh, you know, okay, so now we just we just digitize everything. What this has shown, what the pandemic has shown, is that um, there's no limit to what can happen in, in the digital space. And I say this comes out of some legitimate enthusiasm of what you were just describing. We surprised ourselves of what is possible, but maybe people don't quite understand the scale of what's in the vault at APS. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think about this question all the time, even with my own work on um, Smithsonian anthropology and their archives. I mean, well, if you digitize it, <laughs> then you've got all this data that you then have to make accessible. So, so how do you do that? And all of this requires staff and time and people are tired and have other things that they need to do, too. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, great things are available, but they're still not necessarily accessible. And those are different questions. And I, I think probably Valerie and Cornelia can speak more. That. Yeah, yeah, Valerie. When I said digitize it all, you you had this look come across your face. It must be a particular look to archivists. <laughs> yeah, it's good that I was muted because I laughed out loud and I would have disrupted your whole. <laughs> yeah. You can you can your laugh. whole question. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was no, I mean, embodying just, a data enthusiast when I said yeah. That. <laughs> uh, listen, I love that idea of digitizing everything. And were it practical, I would be for it. I think. You know, you can keep your physical uh, holdings that have special meaning in their physical form and make other stuff available digitally. That's an amazing idea. Love it. However, <laughs> uh, as Adriana, of course, mentioned, it requires resources to do that. And I really I really think that people do not understand the scale and scope of something like that and the undertaking it, it, it is to digitize documents because people imagine what it's like when they walk over to their office scanner and, uh, you know, scan one thing and then they're done. And then it's like in their email is a PDF and that's great. So it's done. But in fact, <laughs> that is not at all what, there's a lot more effort to make stuff accessible to users and even just the scanning um, of documents that aren't just a thing you printed off the printer, uh, also requires, you know, removal of staples and paper clips and, uh, maybe some restoration work. And so like to give an example, 
we did an inventory for preservation for our, our archives holding our archival holdings and uh i had to write a digitization plan for some section of them that were at risk for preservation reasons and um so that is going to be uh a, a maybe uh trying to think of how to how to describe we have hundreds of thousands of items in our collections this is going to be maybe one eighth of the material and it is a five-year plan <laughs> to digitize, you know, $250,000 using the most conservative, least expensive methods, right? And so I think that um, people just don't understand how, how it, how it, what it is, right? So. Let me just take a quick moment to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and um, I'm talking today to Cornelia Posh, Adriana Link, and Valerie Marlowe. And so I want to talk now a little bit about new collections that are emerging. Um, and Cornelia, I want to ask you about this. First, you've been working on the COVID collections project, and it's a project I know some about. And COVID calls is maybe one of these kinds of new collections. I mean, you know, um, and I've interviewed a lot of people who did startup collections in the middle of the pandemic. Some started very early. Um, before I did even in collecting all kinds of different things. I think a lot of us, like speak for myself, trained as a historian, not as a, an archivist. I have no library training. I have no business starting an archive. Um, you know, we had no plan. And I've had conversations with colleagues who asked me very basic questions about my plans for this as an archive. And I had stunningly naive answers um, and still in many ways do, I think. So um, I guess I wanted to I give that just as a confessional to start, but I'm curious about what the COVID Collections Project is, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what you're seeing out there. What are the nature of these new collections that are emerging at this time? Maybe Valerie would be the better person to give the overview, the intro, mm -hmm. um, and I, I can add something sure. afterwards. That's, fine. That's okay. Yeah, so the COVID Collections Project is um, is a, a joint effort between uh, us in the Disaster Research Center's um, E.L. Corntelli Resource Collection and NYU's Public History and Archives Program, and then um, and uh, the, the Institute for Critical Disaster Studies at NYU. And um, we are uh, basically collecting information about new collections that have started since COVID began. Um, and, and with the goal of making, surfacing that and making them more accessible to users who might be interested in using them. And so Cornelia and some of our other students, one other in particular, um, Leah Warner, have, have done a great job of collecting information about these collections. And I think Cornelia's got probably she can think about a hundred examples. We could spend way more than our time here ex discussing even the most interesting. Uh, but we did do a survey. We have hundreds of responses and and uh, just a ton of really great information that we're looking to make available really soon. And Cornelia, do you want to talk about some of those? Sure, yeah. sure. Um, so I think it's it's really interesting what we saw. I mean, we we look at. Mostly our first focus was uh, US-based, but then uh, given that we have some uh, foreign language capabilities and also because the, uh, the earliest hotspots hot were China and Italy, um, we also uh, looked um, 
for Chinese collections, for collections in Italy, and um, also German language collections. And I think it's really, um, it's fascinating how much there is out there, how varied the collections are. Um, and a little bit to, to what you said, Scott, it's, uh, I think there are people who uh, just started collecting something without any plan. Um, and then you have the other end of the spectrum where people really from the very start had a, you know, they had a, they had a system, they had a plan, they now have a perfect, uh, neat website and everything in between. And it's just, um, I think it's so interesting that just, that so many people, so many institutions, libraries, museums, historical societies, community centers, that they all felt this need to collect something. Everybody had very, very quickly, where like within a week or two, everybody had the sense that, okay, something is happening in here and we need to, we need to keep that memory for, for the past, uh, for the, yeah, for the future. And, uh, yeah, it's just fascinating the the variety of things. I just mentioned that there's a student here at KAIST where I am who's also been participating in this, Sulky Lee, and she did a survey of collections just in Korea and some in Japan, and it filled up a spreadsheet. Um, and many of them were on, I mean, it was fascinating to see where she located them. They, some of them already had websites built. Some of them were blogs. Some of them existed in universities, institutional settings, museums, newspapers. And some of them were Instagram feeds. And if you take a wide scope of what a collection is, which social media forces you to do, it's, a, it's you all have sort of used this concept of the, the wild, wild world out there, wild ride. I mean, it is. It's, it's, um, it's a really varied landscape. Adriana, I, I wonder your sort of your thoughts about this. I mean, I'm particularly interested because, I mean, APS is, is a real legacy kind of archive in the sense that it has documents going back to the early history of North America. And so anything you want to say about what Valerie and Cornelia have been saying, but also I'm curious how this sort of new burst of collecting maybe impacts longer standing archives, longer standing collections. Yeah, so I guess one thing I'll say about the APS's collections is that, and, and I think other institutions, this will be true as well, is, is that we have, you know, we have a backlog of things that, that are still in need of processing from before the pandemic. So again, kind of this, this notion of, of prioritization, capacity, um, what what becomes the thing that you focus on first? How do you fund it? Who's going to do the work? All of those questions just continue to be heightened uh, by, by this, this notion of urgency uh, that has come about uh, with kind of COVID collecting. Uh, I guess one thing I'll, I'll say too about uh, what Cornelia and Valerie are describing, I know that the Philadelphia Area Consortium for Special Collections Libraries early on uh, also had a response of, of, of doing a, a kind of collecting uh, project. And, and, and I, I really like this notion of, of collecting being a collaborative effort, something that's not just being done by, by an inst a single institution, something that's building community while it's also building an archive. Um, but to your other point, Scott, about you know, the kind of naivety that comes with the personal archive, I, I've been thinking about a lot, this a lot too, and, and what kind of counts as a COVID archive. Uh, so Isaiah Zager, who's a local artist in Philadelphia, founder of the Magic Gardens, among other kind of beautiful mosaic uh, establishments, put together this really fascinating uh, 
book of drawings basically documenting his COVID year. And should think about that in the same way that we think about other kinds of archives as memorializing, preserving, sharing, circulating, all of the kinds of uh, ways that we're thinking about this moment. So, so I guess that I, I just kind of want to leave it there that, that while I think that there's important work that, that institutions like the ABS are doing in preserving our current historic moment and, and grappling with that, that, that uh, I think the personal archive is also going to be really important and that that raises questions of how do we, you know, what are the things that we make accessible from there and what do we do with it from, from, from this point on? Valerie, are we just, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, if I could just follow on, I think we, um, we had, of course, a ton of those discussions when we were trying to figure out who to send a survey to and what questions should go in the survey design and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I think, um, we've also gotten a ton of inquiries, uh, through our shared inbox for, um, from people who are sort of individual collectors who, um, who, who are asking us, like, where can I send my stuff? Is there somebody who will take this, right? And so we then have this question of like about matchmaking, right? If there's a collect, if there's a collecting entity, uh, broadly construed that might be interested in these, you know, this, this, uh, I'm thinking of this email from, um, a gentleman in India who said he just has a bunch of photographs that he took. And, um, you know, is there somebody who might want them? You know, I think there's going to also be a lot of that sort of, um, matchmaking. And it's one of the things that we hope sort of longer term down the road to where, where we put up a map of collections and different ways to slice and dice that information and visualize who's got what kinds of collections that people can say, I have X, Y, and Z, where's a good home for it? And hopefully that will connect all, not just researchers and collections, but also sort of donors and collections. So. I, yeah, thank you for that. As part of this, I want to stay with for a second and, and Something Adriana said really sparked it, the, it this existential question of what is a what is an archive, which I think you know historically it would be you know everybody has an archive in their house. It's it's a stack of of it's those photographs. It's your um, grandmother's sewing kit with it with things that she collected for you know swatches over you know multiple generations. I mean people have archives in their family. We just think of them as informal or we think of them as, as folk. Art, they fall into different categories, and often they're um, they're not digital. And and I wonder, and I don't want to lay it all on the digital turn, but I think there is something important here that people can share things so much more easily. And so it's maybe somehow easier, Adriana, to say, um, yeah, I, I collected a bunch of things, and I can scan them and take photographs of them, and so now I can pass this on to APS because you want this, right? Don't you want my photographs that I took over a hundred days of a street corner in Philadelphia early in the pandemic. Now myself, like, yeah, I want, I want to see that, but, but it forces a harder question about which we were touching on earlier. So you literally can't collect everything. I mean, no, no, you can't. I, I mean, so one of the, one of the, the, the benefits of the closure was that we were able to install um, compact shelving in, in the, in the basement, sub-basement of Library Hall, which is going to greatly expand the number of things that we can house. But even there, there are still limitations. And and this this notion that um, you know digitizing things, creating digital archives, is somehow a magic fix to to the to the uh, you know the abilities of collections to hold everything is is, is just really uh, not tenable. Uh, so it's uh, it's an interesting question and an interesting problem of where you draw the limits when everything seems to be so relevant and, and increasingly interconnected. 
Cornelia, let me bring you back in. Um, and I'm, I'm spurred to this thought because of the work you're doing about libraries and access, but I, I think it raises some problems around libraries and also COVID archives um, and where the balance of them is going to be. And, and, you know, so we're going to have a lot of North American COVID archives. We're going to have a great a sort of kaleidoscope of probably physical, digital materials about the COVID experience in, in North America, probably in Europe, parts of East Asia. How do you think about the necessity to do similar collecting in other parts of the world, in the global south? Uh, it's, it's interesting. You, thank you for bringing that up because it's actually a, something that we've we've tried uh, recently to to find a way to to reach out to people in uh, especially in Latin America and in Africa, um, and it's not that easy because on the one hand, I'm you know we are sure the collections are there. But they might just not be in the same way that, you know, they might not be digital collections. They might not be on a website. They, they might not be the same. There's nobody we can just send the survey to. Um, so we have tried through, through various channels to find people, um, there, it, like in, in some, uh, in the field, let's say. Uh, and we have actually a, a couple of, of people have reached out to us, offering to collaborate with us, and we are like now in the in the and we're working on trying to you know like find a protocol for that. We 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 did not think of that before that we need some kind of protocol to work with somebody on the ground in somewhere on the African continent who is maybe able to go door to door and and. Um, have people fill out a paper survey. We did not consider that a year, uh, half a year ago. So we're working on a, on a protocol for that right now. But um, yeah, we definitely want to add these things too, because as, as I said, the collections for sure are there. It's not a, a Northern hemisphere thing to collect. So um, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Adriana, you're talking about the indigenous studies um, reading group that you have been leading, and I think it does also touch on similar question, but how that might play out within North America, but for communities that either have, because of a deeper history of segregation, they have their own archiving practices. Um, so maybe this is a period of flux for that, um, or or no? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just kind of continuing conversations that already have been happening. And I, you know, I have colleagues who work with the Center for Native American and Indigenous Research. And, and uh, you know, there, there's a whole community of people who, who have been thinking and are doing this work. Um, but but the, this notion, we didn't talk about it, but, but this kind of question of digital surrogates uh, as, as, as something that, that that may become even more uh, a common practice of, of establishing um, archives that are sort of sister archives or, or I don't, I don't have, you probably have better language for this than I do, but, but thinking about ways to, to share resources uh, that may be physically based in one archive with other communities, other centers, so that that mm. information, that knowledge, I mean, this is something that we do with our digital knowledge sharing fellowships, and, and we host a workshop where we, we kind of share and, and talk about those tools and ways to do that work. So uh, maybe this is an opportunity to kind of continue to expand uh, what it means uh, to, to, to share archival materials. Valerie, I'm going to give you the, the last word on this, um, and I should have thanked you already at the top for being a person who I've relied on for ideas about the COVID calls 
project as well. Um, so I'm ready to hand this off to DRC. Are you ready to take it? Can, you, can I fill out paperwork right now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, just... as long as it doesn't come with any digitization work. Um... <laughs> oh. Oh, no, never mind, never mind, never mind. No, I, just, I won't do that we'll to you live. will be happy to receive I won't it. do that to you live on air. But, um, <laughs> but I have really enjoyed this conversation. I really, you know, appreciate what, what you all have been doing. And I just wanted to give you the last last word on this. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think there's just so much we could, we could do 80 hours on this topic, I think, um, the three of us probably, but, um, I will just as a last kind of word, we are, um, we do have for the COVID collections project, a Twitter account. It's at COVID collects. And, uh, if you are watching this call and you've started a collection of your own, no matter how informal, we would love to hear about it through our survey. The link is there at the Twitter profile, um, and on our website. And um, we are going to have a workshop where we feature four. Uh, we excruciatingly narrowed it down to four <laughs> collections, uh, collectors who are, who are going to do a sort of a, a roundtable discussion of their collecting efforts and what that's been like. And we hope that you all join us online. We'll send out information through that Twitter account. And Scott, I can send that to you as well if you want to put it on the website, the COVID calls website with this call. It'll be April 17th. So mark your calendars. Great. And guests for future COVID calls, past episode 500. Sorry, Cornelia, go ahead. No, it's April 18th. I never know what day it is anymore, and Cornelia is always correcting me. <laughs> Sorry, on air. Sorry. No, it's good. No, it's good. No. Somebody needs to keep track this of This is the kind of specificity I expect from librarians and archivists. This is good. Uh, this is what keeps the history of the world um, in some sort of order. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I remind folks that you've been listening to Restoring Memory, a special episode of COVID Calls and uh, leading up to the 500th episode, which takes place tomorrow, and the launch of the digital archive of COVID Calls, which should happen, I hope, today. We'll see about that today or tomorrow. Um, and I want to thank my guests, Cornelia Posh, Adriana Link, and Valerie Marlowe um, for this brilliant conversation and all the work you do and for your friendship throughout this time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. And we have another COVID call starting literally momentarily with Malka Older and Adia Benton. We will be talking about time and the virus. We'll see you then.